Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of the Personal Finance Show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 148. It's titled, Is Your Financial Advisor Loyal to You? Today's episode was suggested, or topic was suggested by Ward, a member of the Money for the Rest of Us Hub, longtime listener. It's been a topic I've been meaning to cover for a long time, so I appreciate his push to get me to do it now. When I was 28, I was working full-time as a credit analyst. We had recently bought our first home. It was the former owner had passed away. We paid $70,000, spent the entire summer applying coat after coat of Kills Primer and paint to get rid of decades of cigarette smoking residue left behind by the former occupant. Our first son was born. He was approaching his second birthday, and we wanted to start saving for his college tuition. Given we had to sell one of our cars in order to scrape together the down payment on the house, we didn't have much money to start a college fund, just $200. So this was before 529 saving plans, couple years before internet browsers became available to surf the web. And so the easiest way to get information was go to the library and find a book or buy a book or call a financial advisor. And that's exactly what I did. Now, I don't remember how I found a financial advisor. Maybe I went through my local bank. I'm, I'm just not sure. But I do remember one weekday evening, a woman came over to her house to answer our questions regarding savings for college. Now, keep in mind, I have an undergraduate degree in finance. I had recently graduated with an MBA with an emphasis in finance, and I worked in finance full time. Yet I figured there had to be some magic or secret to saving for college, some tax advantage approach or something I just didn't know. And so I invited the advisor over. She was able to help. She was glad to. She opened up a brokerage account in our name, and we invested the $200 in the Franklin Templeton Growth Fund. This is a a stock fund, stock mutual fund, mostly U.S. stocks. has been around since 1948. I didn't question her qualifications. After all, she seemed competent, had a business card that said planner or advisor, and I just assumed she had my best interest, my family's best interest in mind. Never heard from her again. So the $200 sat in the Franklin Growth Fund, untouched, and we didn't add any money to it. Now, that oldest son just graduated from college last year. We were able to get his college. He had scholarships. We helped out some. And and so he made it through. So he didn't have a formal college savings program. Just the $200 is all we had. And so in the late 1990s, about six years later, I had left corporate finance, been working for several years as an institutional investment advisor, and I opened up my quarterly statement from Franklin Templeton Growth Fund. Now, I knew more about mutual funds than I actually had clients, large college endowment that used Templeton as their international 
equity manager. So I, I knew a little bit about Franklin Templeton Growth Fund, but had not spent a whole lot of time up until that point really looking at the statement and realized that I was in the A shares class of the fund, had paid a five and a five point seven five percent commission, and I was paying zero point two five percent annual twelve B one fee. This is this is an ongoing compensation fee that can get that's embedded in the the expense ratio that goes to the advisor who sold us the fund. I remember feeling just a little bit annoyed that I was in such an expensive fund because I then I knew what no load funds were, I knew what index fund were, and I was paying close to one percent annual management fee for this clump, this fund. So, but it had grown to two hundred over four hundred dollars, and so. By my calculations, now that I look back, because I, I was kind of ticked at the time, thinking, and I closed the account. I just pulled the money out, and we would find other ways to save. But think about how much I actually paid this advisor. Just about, just under $20 for the six years, for the 45 minutes she spent in the early 1990s. So once you factor in 5.75% of $200, not very much. And then the 0.25% per year is about 75 cents a year. So not a whole lot of money, not exactly a windfall. Now, the question is, did this advisor act in my family's best interest? Did she charge too much for her advice? And was she even an an investment advisor, a registered investment advisor? And we're going to look at this distinction today between an investment advisor and a financial advisor, and what is their duty of loyalty toward us as their clients? So I don't know if she acted in my best interest. I do know she didn't disclose the compensation arrangement with the the mutual fund company. And while the actual rate was pretty high on a percentage basis, the actual amount of compensation that she got was pretty small. And I'm not sure, I know we didn't have the money to pay a financial planner a couple hundred dollars to to invest our $200. And so this commission route was probably the most cost-effective way for her to provide some advice to us and for us to start saving for college. In the United States, the Security and Exchange Commission has a very specific definition of who is an investment advisor. And again, I don't know if this particular financial advisor was indeed a registered investment advisor and was registered with the SEC. But here's the definition. There are really three parts. It's a person or firm that won for compensation, so they're getting paid, is engaged in the business of, so they have a business of providing advice. That's the third thing. Providing advice, making recommendations, issuing reports, or furnishing analysis on securities either directly or or through publications. Now, when I read that definition, I've read that definition dozens of times because partly I'm trying to figure out what am I? Am I, do I need, when I, when I left my former investment firm and, and started a, a website to start educating, which eventually evolved into the podcast and the Money for the Rest of Us Hub, it's a big deal. Should I be registered as an investment advisor? Because... I'm getting paid, so I'm receiving compensation. I have a business, and by that definition, I'm issuing reports and furnishing analysis on on securities. And by securities, there are 
on the money for the rest of us hub, for example, model portfolios as part of some asset allocation examples that include some exchange-traded funds, which are securities. Now, there are exceptions. So here's the exceptions that the SEC says are not advisors. One, domestic banks are not considered investment advisors. Lawyers, accountants, engineers, and teachers in their performance of advisory services is solely incidental to their profession. So if you're teaching about investing, then you're not a re- not investment advisor. And I, I do teach. Broker-dealers are generally considered not investment advisor. And this gets to the crux of, of some of what we're going to cover today. I suspect the person that, that came to our house was a representative of a broker-dealer, so technically not an investment advisor. And a, another exception is, is what I fall under. It's called the it's Publishers of Bonafide Newspapers, News Magazines, and Business or Financial Publications of General and Regular Circulation. And there was a Supreme Court case that they decided there's three elements that you don't have to register. It's called the publisher's exemption. One, you must offer, the publication must offer only impersonal advice. In other words, advice not tailored to the individual needs of a specific client, which definitely the hub is not geared toward a specific individual. It must be bona fide, it says, which means contains disinterested commentary and analysis rather than promotional materials about a particular security, such as an advertising, thinking that, you know, this stock is definitely going up. So it's impersonal. So it's bona fide from that aspect. And it must be of general and regular circulation rather than issued from time to time into a response to, uh, to an episodic market activity or event. And that means I can't issue a special alert when the stock market crashes. When you, when, for the Money for the Rest of Us Hub, very specific publication schedule. There's a Saturday Plus episode. There's a mid-month strategy update. There's a monthly investment conditions report. So it's on a regular schedule. And, and so from that aspect, I've interpreted it, and as I've spoken to attorneys, I don't need to register as an investment advisor. Now, here's the key of why whether somebody is an investment advisor or just a representative of a broker-dealer, it's whether they are a fiduciary or not. And a fiduciary relationship is one in which an individual has placed trust and confidence in another person who in turn accepts that trust and seeks to act in the individual's best interest in giving conflict-free advice. Here's how the SEC puts it in in saying investment advisors are fiduciaries. They write, as an investment advisor, you are a fiduciary to your advisory clients. That means that you have a fundamental obligation to act in the best interest of your clients and to provide investment advice in your clients' best interest. You owe your clients a duty of undivided loyalty and utmost good faith. That means you should not engage in any activity in conflict with the interest of any client. You should take steps reasonably necessary to fulfill your obligations. You must employ reasonable care to avoid misleading clients, and you must provide full and fair disclosure of all material facts to your clients and prospective clients. And material facts the SEC defined is what a reasonable investor would consider to be important. 
And you must eliminate or at least disclose all conflicts of interest that might incline you consciously or unconsciously to render advice that is not disinterested. In other words, you have some type of conflict or some type of bias. Now, when I read that definition, I was reminded of the one time as an investment advisor where I had a fiduciary relationship, a responsibility to my clients where I, where I, I was probably conflicted and, and didn't handle it very well. I had a pension fund client, very large client, and one of their managers was a, a small cap growth firm called Dree House Capital Management. Very good firm. I actually still use them today in my portfolio, momentum-oriented manager. Well, they invited me and Lapril to a conference that they were having down in Naples, Florida. They were going to pay everything. They paid the airfare for us. They paid the hotel at the Ritz-Carlton in Naples, and I spent the weekend at this conference. I, I learned a lot. It was fun, but they paid for it. And it was once you start adding up those costs, it was probably probably about a thousand dollars. And the next week, I'm on a conference call with the client and the this, the three house capital management. They were one of the managers, and so they were just giving a presentation. And the marketing rep for Driehaus mentioned how I had been and participated in their conference. And I, I kind of shrunk from that. <laughs> I was embarrassed. And, but Driehaus was disclosing it. I probably should have disclosed it, but I never did that again. I never went to an event paid for and sponsored by a money manager that where, especially where that money manager was a client or, or managed money for one of my clients. But, you have this this duty of to act in their best interest with undivided loyalty. Now, what about broker dealers? So, somebody that that's a representative for Merrill Lynch, for example, they are not fiduciaries in most cases, nor are they registered investment advisors. In fact, if you'll go if you go to the Merrill Lynch site, they use the term financial advisors. Broker dealers and broker dealers reps generally they don't they don't register with the SEC, but they become members of FINRA, which is an independent, not non for profit, authorized by organization authorized by Congress to protect America's investors. This is from their website. Basically, a self regulating organization that oversees broker dealer industry and makes sure that they operate fairly and honestly. Now. That's 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 an important word, fairness, because broker dealers and their representatives don't have a fiduciary duty of putting your best interest in mind, or they don't have an undivided loyalty to you. What they're required to do is to deal fairly with their customers, which means to make recommendations that are consistent with the interest of the customers. So consistent as opposed to in the best interest. And the way that they do that is by making recommendations that are, that are deemed suitable. And so it's a suitability type hurdle. Is this particular investment recommendation suitable for the client? Not necessarily in the best interest. And, and this is really kind of a point of contention. And I'm getting this information in terms of suitability, et cetera. This, there was a study on investment advisors and broker-dealers that the SEC put out in 2011, and it was something that came out of the Frank Dodd 
Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act. And, and they comparing the two because the idea was how, what's the difference between investment advisors and broker dealers? And that's really the, uh, the biggest difference. It's this duty of loyalty and fiduciary relationship that an investment advisor has, whereas a broker dealer, a broker representative has the responsibility to be fair and provide consistent recommendations, but not necessarily what is in the best interest of the client. Now, most broker-dealers are going to do what's in the best interest, but they don't have a fiduciary duty, which is a much, much higher standard, and which is why you don't see broker-dealers call themselves investment advisors. They call themselves financial advisors, because investment advisor, that's a legal term. It's registered with the SEC. Here's how the FINRA puts it. They said, an investment advisor is an individual or company who is paid for providing advice about securities to their clients. Although the terms sound familiar, investment advisors are not the same as financial advisors and should not be confused. The term financial advisor is a generic term that usually refers to a broker or to, or to use the technical term, a registered representative. By contrast, the term investment advisor is a legal term that refers to an individual or company that is registered as such with the SEC or a state securities regulator. Common names for investment advisors include asset managers, investment counselors, investment managers, portfolio managers, and wealth managers. Although I can tell you, Merrill Lynch has a service called Merrill Lynch Wealth Management. Let me pause for a moment and share a message from this week's sponsor. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N. A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. 
Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. So we've described the duty of care for investment advisors versus financial advisors with broker-dealers. The, the duty of care for investment advisors, it's a higher standard, much higher standard in terms of the undivided loyalty, best faith, best interest of the client versus just providing recommendations as a broker-dealer that are consistent with the interest of the client. What about robo-advisors? Where do they fit? Well, they're registered investment advisors. And the SEC, just in February, issued a sort of a report or analysis or guidance to robo-advisors, something that they must be careful not to mislead clients. For example, they gave the robo-advisor is providing a comprehensive financial plan if, and in fact, it is not doing that, which is in the case of oftentimes the questionnaires are very, very simple that a robo-advisor uses. It's not a comprehensive plan. They need to be careful that they're to not suggest that a tax loss harvesting service is providing comprehensive tax advice and to let them know that information other than that that's collected by the questionnaire is considered that, in other words, you're not considering other information, just the stuff on the questionnaire to do to make the recommendations. In other words, it can't, it's not this comprehensive service. It's not a comprehensive financial plan. And as registered investment advisors, robo-advisors need to make that clear. Now, there is a ton of confusion between what, and, and, and you saw it in my case, right? I didn't know what the, the woman that came, the financial advisor that came to help us with our college savings, what she was, whether she was a, a registered investment advisor or a financial advisor, what her duty of care and loyalty was. And the SEC has found the same thing as they've done studies. They've seen a great deal of confusion among the, the retail client base, individual investors, and as a result, one of the, the their charges coming out of the in the, the Dodd Frank Act is to come up with uniform standards to so to stop the confusion. And they recommended in that 2011 report that I'll link to in the show notes, and, and all the stuff I, I've shared today will be in the show notes, which you can find at moneyfortherestofus.net, or become a member of my free insider's guide and you'll get those show notes and a summary article sent to you weekly. You can sign up at that website or U.S.-based listeners just text the word INSIDER to the number 44222. So they're recommending a uniform fiduciary standard. And the Department of Labor sort of took the first step in doing that. In 2015, they, after doing extensive research, public hearings, public comments, Finally, for over a year, actually several years they worked on this, but in 2016, April, they came up with new rules for those that work with retirement plans. So employee benefit plans or the individuals involved in those plans, including when they roll money out of, let's say, a defined contribution plan, which in the U.S. is called a 401k plan, into an individual retirement account. Their recommendation is anyone that works in that area in terms of providing recommendations in terms of what to invest in or various options in terms of rollover options, 
they should be considered fiduciaries. And so they've broadened the scope of what a fiduciary is. And the reason for that, in 1975, when the the original fiduciary rules were established, it was a much simpler, simpler time. It just wasn't as complex. Now there are so many options, and and defined contributions ha- have taken off. And so the, these 401k balances or defined contributions are usually overwhelming the largest asset that a client has or an individual has. And they need to know who the person they're talking to has undivided loyalty to them. Here's how the Department of Labor put it in the Federal Registrar where the new rules were published. And those rules were supposed to take effect in April 2017. As we'll see in a moment, they've been delayed. Here's what they said. That if some advisors are not fiduciaries, then, quote, they may operate with conflicts of interest and have limited liability under federal pension law for any harm resulting from the advice they provide. Non-fiduciaries may give imprudent and disloyal advice, steer plans and IRA owners to investments based on their own rather than their customers' financial interests, and act on conflicts of interest in ways that would be prohibited if the same persons were fiduciaries. So that's the Department of Labor. Now, there's been pushback. And one reason there's pushback is there's a lot of money at stake. The consulting firm A.T. Kearney estimated in a study that the DOL's new fiduciary rule would cost brokerage industry $11 billion in revenue over the next four years as assets shift from more expensive products to less expensive solutions, including robo-advising. So there's some money at stake. But also some of the concern, and and this is why President Trump issued a executive memorandum in early February, where he said essentially delayed implementation of this rule, this Department of Labor rule, specifically geared toward those that work with employee benefit plans and individuals, those that work with individual individuals that have individual retirement. Accounts. The the executive order said the Trump administration, one of their priorities was empower Americans to make their own financial decisions, to facilitate their ability to save for retirement, and build the individual wealth necessary to afford typical lifetime expenses, such as buying a home, paying for college, and to withstand unexpected financial emergencies. The executive order stated this new fiduciary rule may significantly alter the manner in which Americans can receive financial advice and may not be consistent with the policies of my administration. The order directs the Department of Labor to determine whether the new rule has harmed or will likely to harm investors due to a reduction of Americans' access to certain retirement savings offerings, retirement product structures, retirement savings information, or related financial advice, or will increase the price investors must pay to gain access to retirement services or cause an increase in litigation. And so they're re-looking at the rule to see if it will, in fact, cause individuals to have to pay more to get some investment advice. Here's what the SEC acting chairman, Michael Peewawar, says. To me, that rule, it was about one thing. Actually, let me start, start the quote over. Here's, here's his quote. I have a very nuanced view 
of the DOL fiduciary rule, duty rule. I think it's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad rule. To me, that rule, it was about one thing. It was about enabling trial lawyers to increase profits. Now, I don't know if I agree with that, that it's only because uh, of attorneys going to get more from lawsuits. Certainly, there'll probably be more litigation because the standard will be higher for broker-dealer reps, for insurance agents. But the rule doesn't get rid of commission-based compensation. The rule doesn't say the only solution in, in a client's best interest is the cheapest solution. I had a fiduciary duty as an investment advisor in working with clients, and we didn't always recommend index funds or the cheapest op- option. Sometimes we used active management because that was the appropriate solution. But my clients knew that I had their best interest and I had undivided loyalty to them. And so I just, I laid things out. Here's the pros and the cons of each investment decision or recommendation. And I think all financial advisors ought to be held to the same standard and do that. Kathy Davenport, a New York Life Insurance agent, says, my clients trust and rely on me to help them plan and save for retirement. But this regulation in Washington would put barriers between us by both limiting the way I can speak to my clients and by limiting my ability to offer products that they rely on for a secure retirement. I I disagree with that. I think she still has the opportunity to, to sell whole life insurance or other products. I just think she has to do it in a way where she's a fiduciary, where she discloses and avoids conflicts of interest. And perhaps it is a more expensive product, but if it's appropriate and in the client's best interest for their given situation, take single premium immediate annuities, they can make a lot of sense for some near retirees. And so it's just leveling the playing field and avoiding And one of the things that Erwin Stelzer points out, he, in the Weekly Standard, which is generally considered a pretty conservative publication, he talks about informational asymmetry. The seller inevitably has more knowledge of the product than most buyers can have. And if somebody knows more about something and they're selling it to you, then it just makes sense that they be fiduciaries and have an undivided loyalty to you so that all conflicts of interest are avoided and you can have confidence in their recommendation and not wondering whether there's some ulterior motive. So what do you do if you're selecting an investment advisor, a financial advisor? First, ask them, what is your role? Are you a registered investment advisor? Do you have a fiduciary relationship with me to act in my best interest, act in good faith and have undivided loyalty? How are you compensated? How are we paying for this? And how do you work with clients? So understand up front and and know these things and ask these things. And that way you can make an informed decision regarding selecting a financial advisor or an investment advisor, even if this law isn't ever implemented. These are things you need to know if you're seeking outside help with your financial situation. So that's episode 148, show notes at moneyfortherestofus.net. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I'm not a registered investment advisor, so I'm providing general education on a regular, consistent basis. So have a great week.